0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, A Church for the City. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 2, 42-47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking bread and the prayers. praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Our society seems to be more connected than we've ever been, right? With globalization, we've become more mobile, People are living more transient lifestyles with uh, the ability to pick up and move from city to city with ease, whether it's for jobs or just preference. Social media and technology allows us to connect with people who are all over the globe in just one click. And we have this level of familiarity with people, even though we may have not talked to them within the last decade, somehow through social media we're able to know every single major life event that has happened in people's lives. Yet in this highly connected society, more people feel lonelier than ever. 20% of the, the population in the United States, that's one in five people express this feeling of, of deep loneliness. In fact, that's twice as many people uh, today saying that same thing, that they feel lonely, than 10 years ago. And that's just the people who admit, admit it. I, I would imagine that this, this feeling of loneliness is probably more pervasive than what studies show and while it's a global phenomenon, it's also happening right here in our cities, in Moline and Rock Island. It's likely that our neighbors, our coworkers, feel like they're alone in a crowded city. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people who are in this room right now that, that can relate to that feeling. Now, if you know this feeling, you know how undesirable this is, right? It, it goes against our human nature. We were made to be relational creatures, right? we, were, we were made to exist in meaningful and intimate relationship with God and with one another. In fact, my, my counselor, Jim, says the quality of our life is based on the quality of our relationships, right? We were made for relationship. And, and what this shows, the statistics. Statistics suggest that as more people feel lonely, more people are living a diminished and lonely life in isolation. Now, this is a real problem. This is, this is a real problem in our city. And we, over the last few weeks, have been unpacking what it means for us to be a church for the city. That's what this whole sermon series is about. What does it look like for us to be a church for the city? And, and I hope at this point you're seeing that being a church for, city, for the city is more than just coexisting in the city. It's more than just occupying space in the city. But first... It's being a church that loves the city. It's being a people who love the Quad Cities. It's being a people who see the potential of our city and work to make our city a better place for all people. And last week we talked about the the Christian's unique responsibility and role in working for the flourishing of the city by connecting people to God. And we saw how God does this through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now today, we're, we're going to kind of jump off from there, and we're going to talk about a big implication of the gospel, of what it means for us to be connected to God. And that's specifically how, as we're connected to God, it, it now transforms us as relational people. The gospel forms meaningful community where we are profoundly connected to other people. It creates relationships that pushes back and remedies the loneliness and separation that we can see in our city. And as we dive into Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which is sort of like a staple passage here at Sacred City. In fact, I've already preached through this passage at the beginning of this year. This passage highlights maybe the single most important trait of Christian community. And that is that the church is a sharing community. Now think of all the meaningful relationships that you've ever had in your life. They are founded upon this idea of sharing. Whether that's with your family and sharing space at home, with your friends when you're in kindergarten, you share a snack and now you win a friend over. Your are friends now, you're sharing interests and hobbies. Sharing is a way that forms meaningful relationships. And the church shares in a way that, that goes beyond the normal sharing that you might experience in life. And there are four ways that the church practices being a sharing community. I want to unpack those for you today. It's first that we, we share things. Second, that we share life. Christian community, thirdly, is a shared faith. And it's a shared mission. And when we share these things as a church, this is when strong bonds are created and meaningful community is generated. Now, the first thing when people read through Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the first thing that people typically notice is that people are sharing their things. Right. They look at verse 45 and say, wow, they're, share, they're selling their stuff to help meet people's needs. Right? That would be, that's that's kind of cool. I, I want to be part of a, a community like that, seeing needs, working hard to meet those needs. But if there's one thing that you learn early on in life is that sharing is hard. And I've got two boys, my oldest two boys, well, actually I have three boys, but my two oldest boys, Kuyper and Reichen, are about two years apart from each other. And it seems like half of my fatherly responsibilities and duties revolve around mediating property disputes in our household, right? That's my toy. That's my ball. That's my thing. And I realize as I watch these two brothers sort of bicker and argue about what's mine, it's really just a dramatized version of what goes on in everybody else's hearts, even as adults, You would think that maybe we grow out of this attitude, but as life goes on, this attitude remains. We just figure out how to say mine in more polite ways. And if unchecked, this greed, this desire to have and to keep and to accumulate for ourselves has a potential to not just be a barrier to relationships, but actually to destroy relationships. In fact, I was listening to a podcast uh, last week that was, it was so interesting. It was like a family of 12 uh, now adult siblings that were bickering over family inheritance. And, and it wasn't like a, a, a ton of money or an estate. It's like bickering over who gets the china and who gets this rocking chair and just stuff that's like, who, who cares? But this desire for mine to have can destroy these Relationships. But here in chapter 2 of Acts, we see that this community doesn't have that attitude, at least um, not, not to the, the full extent that you might see in other places. It looks like people are sharing their, their things with one another. And, and some might look at this passage and say, well, this is biblical support for socialism, right? This idea that everybody chips in, everybody contributes, so that way the greater good is met, But in order to see the significance of what's going on in this passage, we have to realize that what's happening here in the book of Acts, this isn't something, the sharing that's government mandated, right? This isn't a societal structure. In fact, at this point in scripture, in the time of history, Christians don't have that kind of influence, literally just a few sentences before this, Christianity is just beginning as Peter preaches his first sermon ever at Pentecost. And so it's not like Christianity is shaping the societal norms and values that it's sort of this top-down sort of structure. This is, this is a grassroots, organic sort of social dynamic. Unlike socialism, which is government, government mandated, it's it's this idea: pay or be punished. What we see in Acts chapter two is voluntary sharing. And verse forty six tells us it's not even like resent resentful sharing. Like I guess I I guess I have to do this. Verse 46, 46 tells us that this is happening out of a glad and generous heart. This means that people are happy to give. They're, they're giving without being forced or being told to do this. And so something completely different is happening here within the context of Christian community. Something profound is happening. Something has fundamentally changed these people to behave in a way that is contrary to their natural disposition to keep for themselves. In other words, they've, their greed has been transformed into generosity. And as the church history unfolds, Christian culture starts to run parallel to the rest of the culture. That there's a very distinguished interaction Christians have with one another compared to the rest of the culture. And, and I posted this letter of, of Diognatius uh, a couple of weeks ago up on Realm, and I just want to pull something out from there because this is about 200 years after Jesus has ascended. Somebody's writing a letter to the church father, and, and what they're doing is they're acknowledging the difference between how Christians interact with each other within their own, within their own culture and how the culture at large is vastly different. And what they're saying is here is when when we look at the culture, these these non-believing people, they're they're sharing their beds. They're they're promiscuous. They're they're giving their bodies away in a way that's like, oh, wow, that that seems to be generous, but really it's layered in self-interest. They're giving themselves away to meet their own needs. And instead of Practicing generosity and sharing their resources and what they have and sharing their table. Like it's, it's just this really consumeristic, it's, it's for me, it's about me and what I want. Whereas the Christians are contrast to that, where, where they actually don't share their bodies like the way the rest of the culture is doing. In fact, they're, they're, they're monogamous, they're, they're staying devoted to their spouse and not uh, going to extramarital relationships. But instead, they're being generous. They're living a life of generosity, that they're sharing their tables. Right? See, the resources that they have, they're making it available to other people, and they're sharing. This is, this is one of the most distinguishing pieces that sets Christian community apart from the rest of the culture, just the practice of generosity. In this, we see that something happened down at the heart level where the Christian's love for their stuff and for self was superseded by a love for other people. So much so, they're selling their things and being generous in a way to express their love for other people. But even more than just sharing their stuff, We see this community sharing their lives. Verse 44 tells us that they were together and they had all things in common. We we talk about this. They were living life on life. They were sharing life. Now, it's one thing to give somebody 50 bucks, right? Say, "Let, let me help meet this need. Let me help you pay this bill. But it's a whole other thing to share your life with someone else. And what this passage is doing is highlighting their togetherness. These people are functioning more than just generous acquaintances. This Christian community has made an intentional effort to live life together and share these daily rhythms with one another. They eat together. They spend time in each other's homes. They do stuff. They go out into the city. They're at the temple together. They're rubbing elbows, not just in sacred spaces when they worship on Sunday mornings or in missional communities. They're rubbing elbows all throughout the week. And really, when you get to the bottom of it, what does it look like? It looks like they're functioning as a familial unit. They're they're acting like they're family. Now, this sort of living goes far deeper than rearranging your calendar just to see people a couple times a week. Right? When, when scripture says they have all things in common, it's not just talking about their physical things, like the, the things that they can feel. They're, they're talking, it's talking about the sharing of their inner life as well. They're, they're sharing their joys and their struggles, their weaknesses, their wounds. They're sharing their losses and their wins. Right? They're, they're sharing the whole of their life, not just, not just the highlights, but all of this, when you get to the bottom of this, what we're talking about here is vulnerability. These people are sharing themselves in a way that puts them in a vulnerable position. Because there may not be anything more vulnerable than to be truly known and truly loved. Right? You're putting yourself out there in a sense. You're saying, this is who I am. there's nothing more vulnerable than doing that in our hyper-connected world that sense of vulnerability is what most people lack the the ability to be fully known and fully loved It's, it's not that we don't have any connections it's not that we don't have any relationships in our life in fact Social media will point to the fact that we have a lot of different relationships, like hundreds and thousands of friends and followers on social media. And so in a sense that we have access to all kinds of people, but more and more what's happening is that our our relationships and these connections that we have are, though they're high in, in quantity, they are low in quality. Right, it's the relational equivalent. If you have if you have 50 bucks, it's like going to McDonald's and getting as much as you can for 50 bucks instead of going down to Johnny's and getting a nice steak. And people are starved for meaningful connection. Right? These surface level, these shallow interactions that we have from behind a screen just aren't cutting it. We, we do have a hunger for depth, to be vulnerable, to be known, and to be loved. And while social media gives the appearance of connectivity, it only exploits the problem. Right? We, might, we might post our thoughts, our photos, life updates, but, but everything that we post is filtered, not not just once, like multiple times, right? We, we, we tend to only show the highlights and none of the behind the scenes, none of the real life stuff, right? We'll post how adorable uh, our kids are and how much we adore them and love them, but, but we don't mention the freak out that we have on our kids 10 minutes later, right? We, we post the, 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 how on point our outfit is, but we don't talk about how it took us an hour and 12 other outfits to finally arrive at the point where we felt comfortable snapping a photo in the mirror, right? It's all highlights, none of the behind the scene. It's so hard to actually know somebody digital because everything is editable. Everything is filtered. We, put, we filter what we post, right? The highlights, not the background stuff. And then what do we do? When we post it, we actually put a filter on that post so it looks even better, right? So our smile pops, our skin glows a little bit better. And then not to mention like how much time you spend laboring over the caption just to get it right so people think, oh, how how whimsical and clever you are. Now, if you do a side-by-side comparison to your digital presence and the real you, you're going to find that, that these two are not necessarily the same thing. It, it, in fact, it's not really you. This, this persona that we put out there and project on social media is sort of maintained. And, and what we do is sort of we curate this idea of the ideal self. Right, what's the version of me that people are going to like? What's the version of me that people are going to affirm? And, and we equate likes and the hearts, the double taps, with the feeling of being loved. In fact, like brain science shows that, that the likes on social media, when we get feedback on social media, it's, it's like a chemical reaction that's just, it's like, almost like a drug, but, but correlates to the feeling of being loved and affirmed. And now knowing this, knowing that, you know, if it's the double tap that's going to get us a like, well, what do we do? We keep, we keep posturing ourselves. We cre- keep creating and contributing to this ideal version of ourselves. Now this, even though social media is relatively new within the last 15, 20 years, this isn't a new problem. Right? Social media didn't create a new problem because people have been posturing long before social media ever hit the market. the thing is we don't realize how posturing and and pretending to be somebody we're not keeps us from having meaningful relationships. Because when we're posturing, when we're trying to be something, when we're trying to project, it keeps us from being who we truly are. It, It keeps us from showing the real you, the real me. It keeps us from sharing our inner self. Because because of this, if people don't know the real you, they can't love the real you. They might love the idea, the ideal you. They might like what you put out there. But is that the real you? So then some people take a different approach to social media. They think, okay, well, let me put myself out there. Let me be known. Well, and then they put their authentic self out there on social media. They treat uh, social media as a space to dump all their thoughts and opinions and feelings. They start treating social media like it's a diary. And then what happens? Right? People look at that and I'm like, that person seems messy. That, that person seems like a whole ball of drama. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can go there with that person. See, and then in the place of attempting to be known, we don't find the love that we're looking for. But being known isn't meant to happen through a screen. Being known is a process. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of being face-to-face with other people. And when you think of it, this is really scary. You're, you're really putting yourself out there because it's one thing to get rejected online and, and have people sort of ignore who you are and ignore your posts, but, but to be uh, ignored face to face, to be rejected face to face, that's sort of a scary thing. In fact, one of the underlying fears that most people have is what if, what if I show someone the true me? What, what if I show them my real colors? You know, and what, what then? What if, what if they don't like me? What, what if they reject me? They, they look at me and say, well, you, that person's too messed up. You're, you're too awkward. You're insecure. You're needy. You're too sarcastic. You're too critical. And the list can go on. And all of these character flaws. And listen, you, you might have all of those negative character flaws going for you. And I think that we don't do any justice to anybody to pretend like those things don't exist. And if you live your life, life on life, these character flaws are bound to surface. Your, your emotional immaturity is a bound to surface. Your emotional immaturity will eventually surface. Which then again highlights the fear. What happens? Well, people push away, right? That's, that's what you think. Right? The, the real me comes out and, and people are going to push away from me. Or, or the real me is exposed and I feel so ashamed and embarrassed that I want to run and hide. It's like I've been found out. And in a lot of ways, that's a way that our culture functions. You've got to live up to the hype. You've got to be up to snuff. But it's vastly different with people who believe the gospel. You look at Acts chapter 2, right? the one thing that is contributing to all of the sharedness of life is that they believe the gospel. And because they believe the gospel, there's a sense where the fears have been lifted, that they can actually move toward one another in authenticity. So how can it be that when everybody else is running away, when everybody else is scared of being their authentic self, being true, they're afraid that people are going to, you're gonna open up and people are just gonna flee. Well, why is it that Christians move in? See, this comes down to the matter of, of having a shared faith. Christians move in toward one another, toward others who, who share their true selves because God has done this for us in the gospel See, the gospel is the message that God doesn't just stand back and see us in all of our messiness and all of our error and all of our character flaws, all of our immaturity, and just like, well, I'm glad I don't have to deal with them. No, God, God looks at us and says, man, I want them. I, I, he, he moves toward us. See, the thing is, God knows, more of, more, knows us more thoroughly than anyone else. In fact, he, he knows you better than you know yourself. He sees all your character flaws. He sees all of the immaturity that surrounds your life. And he doesn't look at you and say, come on, man, get your act together. Just, just sort your stuff out and, and present yourself in a decent way, and, and then I'll love you. Then, then I'll affirm you. No, the gospel shows us that that we're fully loved as we're fully known. Even in our confession today, that, that we're worse than we thought, but more loved than we could ever dream. See, right where you are at, in the exact moment in time, God knows you and God loves you. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Jesus looked at us and he saw the true reality of our nature, that we are born in sin, that we're stuck in sin, we're trapped and bound by sin, yet he died for us. He laid his life down for us in the ultimate display of love. And when you know just how deeply Jesus knows you and loves you, when you know that you have the king of the universe, you don't have to pretend and posture to be someone you aren't in order to learn, earn the love and acceptance of other people. See, the gospel frees us from this need to posture, pretend, to project. It gives us the freedom to be who we are, to be comfortable in our own skin without having to put a filter on things. This is how the love of Jesus frees us from having to earn the love from other people. Now, when you think about it, this this is the only way that the pressure comes off other people in relationships. This is the only way that pressure comes off relationships and opens them up to thrive. Because if you go into relationships and say, man, I need this from you. I need your love. I need your affirmation. I need this and this and this and this from you. Then it's slowly going to stifle the relationship, but if you have all that you need, if you're satisfied and content in the love of Jesus, then, then you're free to not have to have the love of other people. See, otherwise, you're always using relationships to chase your, your own needs, and it works the other way too. That you can only fully know, you can only fully love others if you have been fully known and fully loved by Jesus yourself. And, And while we have this reality that right where we are, Jesus loves us, while we're deeply loved exactly where we're at, Jesus has a love for us that doesn't let us stay in the same spot that Jesus has a desire his love is so strong for us that he wants to love us to our best and the more we realize how loved we are by Jesus the more that love changes us that we become like him now this is the essence of discipleship that you see here in acts chapter 2 42 where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This this is discipleship. This is people in pursuit of becoming like Jesus. In fact, the great commission that Jesus gives at the end of Matthew 28, where he says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. See, this is is what we're invited into as we are loved by Christ. We're invited to become imitators of Christ, to pursue Christ-likeness in our own lives to be devoted to his teaching, to obey him, to give ourselves to the prayers, to be formed in Christ through the gospel. And so it's in this sense that the Christian community isn't just a community that says, hey, we're glad you're here. Yeah, we're glad you're here. But man, we, we see that you got potential. God has something for you. He's wanting to do something in your life where as, the, as individuals grasp hold of this, the whole community grows and matures into Christ-likeness. And while Christian community is sharing their things and sharing their life and sharing faith, Christian community We must realize it doesn't exist only for the sake of community. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but basically says Community for the sake of community will eventually self implode. The bottom will fall out. If you're going to community to give you something, to, to, to find what you want strictly in community, it's not gonna be able to meet your demands. In fact, community for in order for, for a community to stick together and to grow and to mature and to learn what it looks like to share their stuff and their life and to share their faith must be rooted in a bigger purpose. This is what we must share the same mission. See the church is existent not just to connect us to one another but we exist in a way to make other people know what God is like. Chris Wright says that God doesn't have a mission for his church. God has a church for his mission. See, the moment you become a Christian, your life gains a new mission where you are here not just to, as a Christian, to to tout morals and promote family values. We're not here just to put on programs and do outreach events. God's mission is to make his glory known throughout our entire city and beyond. See, the city here, the churches here in our city to be united around the same mission to make God and his glory known, that God is looking down and he knows us and he loves us. He's adding people to his family so much so that it goes beyond every single societal uh, boundary. Right. The, the, scripture tells us the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. That means social, uh, socioeconomic walls that prevent the, the rich from engaging with the poor. Racial boundaries. We're talking about cultural and societal norms. All of these things are superseded by this new bond that we have as we are adopted by God into his family. And as we go as God's people, fully known and fully loved. We go to make the glory of God known in every neighborhood in the Quad Cities. To tell people who are far off from God, who are busy uh, posturing and pretending, trying to make themselves more acceptable to God, to say, hey, brother, you are loved. Sister, you are loved right where you're at. See, this is what it means. This is what it looks like for us to be a church for the city. See, to be a church for the city, we have to be a community that is learning what it's like to share our stuff, to share our life, what it looks like to share our faith, and to share our mission. And to do this, the only way we can do this is if we together rally around the gospel, that that all of our indifferences fade away in the backdrop of what Christ has done, how God has reconciled us to himself, and how we are being reconciled to one another how we are vitally connected to people. And we go on our way inviting other people that they can get in on this too. And unless we share like this, unless we as a community learn how to share like this, we'll never be a church for the city. We might be a church for ourselves, but we won't be a church for a city because a church for the city is loving one another in a way, the outside watching world, scripture says this, they'll know you are Christians by your love. Right? The supernatural love that we have for one another comes straight from God. And in that love, we demonstrate God's glory. And people are attracted to that. I think this, this way of living, the this, this sharedness of life, is really challenging. This idea of sharing my stuff, sharing my life, sharing faith, sharing my mission. It's really hard, and nobody does it perfectly. But no matter how we failed, no matter what the state of our our life is like right now, repentance begins right here. Repentance begins right here at the Lord's table as we break bread together. See, as we come down the aisle to receive the elements, the body that represents Christ's body broken for us, the the, the wine that represents Christ's blood shed for us, it tells us that we've been forgiven, That, that right where we are in this moment in time, with all of our flaws, with all of our sins, all of our failures, we are known and we are loved. And as we see that, we look across the aisle, what's true for me is also true of you. And in that love, we have a brotherhood. We have a sisterhood. We have this familial tie that we belong to God. Father, we thank you this morning for what you're doing, that you've made us to be not just a a people who are huddled up together, not just a people who are self-interested, but but through the outworking of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being made a a people who are living to be connected to one another. That as we're connected to you, God, we have these new relationships. In fact, even our old relationships are transformed. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live like a church for the city and sharing our stuff, sharing our lives, sharing our faith, sharing our mission. God, would you, would you use us in a way that's for the advancement and the welfare of our city? Would you bring those who, are, who feel lonely and isolated, would you bring them in Would you help us to reach out, to bring them in and help them be connected to meaningful community, God, because you have done so for us in Christ. We thank you for the Lord's table now. Be with us, Lord, as we break bread. Bind us together in the spirit of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.